0: To the official podcast of the mission Redlands, we are a growing community living out god 's radical love amen so I think uh, Pastor Jason, without planning it uh, today, started with those hymns and that 's sort of what I grew up on uh, back in church and I was thinking about our lives as it related to the, that first song, uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Um, you know, many of you may or may not know this, but. Um When we lived in New York City, uh, we went to an African-American church. We were the only Caucasian family there, which produced some funny things. And uh, one of those things is our children sang in the children's choir. There's probably 40 kids in the choir. And, you know, in the African-American church, there's a whole step and clap kind of thing. I can't even do it to demonstrate to you, but our kids couldn't do it either. So they would literally be bouncing off the people next to them in the the wrong direction because they were clapping the wrong way. What was really funny, though, with it is, you know, the... People uh, would work very hard at um, not making us feel like we were different, which, you know, was nice. And uh, we came to pick up our kids after choir Sunday afternoon. They had children's uh, choir practice on Sunday afternoons. And there's 40 kids in the choir. There's two Caucasian kids in the whole group, ours. And as we come in, they're like, uh, so which children are yours? <laughs> Thinking, yeah, thank you. That's very nice of you. But, and then uh, Jason went on and, and played the, uh, that song, um, uh, nothing But The Blood, and I, I grew up with that song. It was a little different than that. You couldn't dance to it because we were Baptists. So, you know, it was a little different than how Jason played it. But that was great. Made me feel ready for today. If you're visiting today, though, I should, I got to warn you, right? You got to be a little bit nervous when, you know, they've been announcing for two or three weeks that I'd be speaking and all the regular people are gone. So that's, that should scare you a little bit going into the sermon today. But, um... We're going to be looking at uh, part three of this sermon series, uh, Pardon Our Dust. And you know that whole expression, pardon our dust, is this idea that uh, we're, we're works in progress. And for, for those here who are Christians, who are followers of Christ, who've uh, recognized the fact that without him, uh, we're sinners, uh, we do bad things, we all do bad things, and uh, that we can't have that relationship with God Uh, Unless we've accepted the gift of his son. So God sent his son to earth, made it possible for us to have a relationship with him through his death on the cross. So for those that are believers here today who are disciples uh, or Christians, we are disciples. So we're a work in progress in a specific way in that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. Um, In this sermon series, we've been uh, looking at some challenging questions Um, Last week, Ricardo looked at the question of, am I a disciple? Uh, This week, we'll be looking and considering the question, can I trust the Bible as my source for becoming like Jesus? And then next week, you'll have to come back because uh, Jason's going to be answering the question, how do I grow through the family of God? So let's back this up just for a moment. Last week, we learned that there is no such thing as this super-Christian who we might call a disciple. Anybody that is a Christian is a disciple, is a follower of Jesus. And then from that, we know that the discipleship is the process of becoming more and more like Him. We know from the Great Commission that God has called us to become disciples and that this is sort of all that he's told us to do, and if that's the case, then we better be really sure of what it takes to be a disciple, to become more and more like Jesus. I was thinking about this a little bit, like in our own lives, when we maybe have times where we seek to become more and more like somebody else. So when I was growing up uh, for a few years, we lived in Canada and I went to high school there. And in 10th grade, I had an uh, English teacher named Mrs. McLean. She was a great teacher. And at uh, some point during the year, she had assigned a, a book report, a book for us to read to do a book report on. And I read it and I loved it. The author was captivating. It was, it was great. It was this sort of suspenseful mystery kind of thing. And I liked it so much that I read maybe two or three more books by that same author. And when I'd written my first paper, the one that had been assigned, I ended up writing it a little bit like that author. And then the next paper that I wrote that didn't have anything to do with it, I again wrote just like this author. And I remember Mrs. McLean, God bless her, says to me, you need to redo this paper. You've lost your voice and you've taken on the voice of this other person, uh, this author instead. Um, And I was like, darn, you're familiar with him or her. (laughs) So... Uh, So that was like an example of how we can become more and more like uh, somebody else. And here's another example from more modern time periods. Everybody knows Jim and Dwight. So we have a little, uh, little something here to show you. Oops, maybe we'll have sound too. It's kind of blurry. That's better. Question. What kind of bear is best? That's a ridiculous question. False. Black bear. Well, that's debatable. There are basically two schools of thought. Fact. Bears eat beets. Nope. Bears. Beets. Battlestar Galactica. Bears do not... What is going on? What are you doing? Last week, I was in a drugstore, and I saw these glasses. Uh, $4. And it only cost me $7 to recreate the rest of the ensemble, and that's a grand total of... $11. You know what? Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, so I thank you. Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Millions of families suffer every year. Michael! Oh, that's funny. Michael! So there's another example of uh, somebody imitating somebody else. And as I was thinking about both of those examples a little bit, though, I think there's some application that we can make in our desire as disciples to become more and more like Jesus. So when I gave that first example of that author that I had become more like, what had I done? I had read several works by this author. I had come to know this author and how they wrote through the writings I had read. And then you think about that example with Jim and Dwight. You know, the two of them had worked together uh, for an extended time period. Jim had had a chance to study Dwight's mannerisms and his outfits and understood him better as an individual and therefore was able to mimic him or imitate him. And I thought it's much the same way with us in our Christian walk. If we're going to become more like Jesus, then we have to know him. I have to study him, I have to read him, I have to read about him, I have to understand him in a way that, um, where I could come to uh, imitate him in my own life, to become like him in who I am. And really, when it comes to our understanding of how we can know Christ, there's really the one central way of doing that is through what he's revealed about himself, primarily through his word. In fact, he's given us his word, he's given us the Bible as our playbook for life, um, think about Psalm 119, 105, and I think I'll have the passage brought up on the, bo- the uh, wall here. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the world that we live in today, you know, where we have streetlights and cars with headlights and you know cell phones with flashlight apps, uh, we don't think about this passage in the way that these people would have thought about it in the time period that this was written. But in that time period, if you had a light or a lamp, that was your way to know that you knew that you were going the right way. It was your way to keep from stumbling. It helped you to not fear the darkness, It helped others to recognize you. That's the way God's word is for us. It helps us to ensure that we are on the right way. It keeps us from stumbling. It can remove our fears because we have a certainty about our situation. Our future is certain. We have assurances of his love for us. And following it allows others to see something different about us as well. So, if the Bible's the primary way that we get to know him, then we'd better be able to trust the Bible, right? Think about, just in terms of history, uh, I don't know if you remember the story of Thomas Jefferson, but Thomas Jefferson was a person who did not trust the Bible. He actually had a Bible where he had cut out, using a knife, certain words and phrases and verses from that Bible and passages because that can't possibly be true. But I want to share with you today sort of four reasons that you can trust the Bible. I know there's a lot more reasons for it, but I want to share four. And maybe four just because of the four I could think of that start with the letter A. So, you know, there we go. Um, so the uh, first word, first thing is the authenticity of Scripture. So when you look at ancient books, there's sort of two ways that people, that researchers have looked at these, scholars have looked at them and said, hey, you can know that this is, this is real. And one of those is related to uh, how many copies or how many manuscripts exist for a particular work. And then the second way is how long after the original was written do we have the first copy of it, the first existing manuscript from it. And if you look at most, most of the historical works from ancient time periods, there are only a handful of manuscripts available for them. Yet, Typically, scholars don't doubt that Sophocles or you know, whoever else wrote these particular older works. And probably the work that we have, other than the Bible, for which we have the most information available, is a book uh, by Homer called The Iliad. I have a picture of it here. That's a more modern version of it. But uh, The Iliad, um, there are 643 known manuscripts of The Iliad by far more than any other ancient work other than the Bible. Most of them have less than 100. Uh, So 643 available copies or manuscripts of the Iliad, at least portions of the Iliad. The earliest one dates from 500 years after Homer first wrote the book. If you compare that with the Bible, for the Bible, there are 24,000 known manuscripts of the Bible. And the nearest ones, the closest ones to the time they were actually written, were from a mere 25 years after the Bible or the, book of the uh, certain books of the New Testament were actually written. And there's no doubt in scholars' minds that the Iliad was written by Homer, and yet skeptics will raise questions about the Bible despite the fact there's a greater degree of authenticity with it. Second reason that we can trust the Bible relates to accuracy. So, whenever you have a literature work that's been copied and copied and copied and copied, you'd expect some degradation in that book over time. We talked about the Iliad before. In the Iliad, there are 764 lines that are in debate because of the different versions, the different manuscripts of it. That's 5% of the total book of the Iliad. You compare again, you compare that to Scripture. In the New Testament, there are only 40 lines that are in any kind of doubt uh, across all the different versions, all the different manuscripts that exist. And most of those are words that have been changed or letters that have been flipped, those kinds of things. That's actually just one-half of 1% of the New Testament. Third reason that you can trust Scripture is the archaeological evidence. So over and over again, we find that archaeology proves that events in the Bible take place or have taken place. Um, I think one of the ones that's probably most debated has been the fall of the walls of Jericho, right? Incredible story. How could that possibly take place? And there was a a long period of history for which there was great doubt among scholars about whether the fall of Jericho, where they had this miraculous uh, walls came crashing down in a miraculous way. uh, There was a lot of doubt about whether that could actually have taken place. And so in the early 1900s, scholars said, you know, there is... No way that the Israelites came into the land of Canaan before uh, about 1400 B.C. And evidence would point to the fact that this place called Jericho was destroyed in about 1600 B.C. So the two things couldn't possibly be linked. And then in the late 1980s, a uh, researcher from the University of Toronto, who's not a believer, he's a secular scholar, uh, began doing more diggings in that area. And he found something that was amazing. He found a layer of ash uh, that was about three feet thick. It had been uh, ash that had been compressed. His immediate thought was that this is something that happened very quickly, where something was destroyed quickly. In those layers of ash, there were shards of pottery, and they were able to take some of those shards of pottery and test them with radiocarbon dating. And they tested those the dates that they tested too were 1410 BC. So over and over again, it was interesting, when I was doing my research on this, the article I found on it was from the New York Times, and even they had to chokingly admit that uh, the Bible may actually be right when it comes to the account of the fall of Jericho. So over and over again, though, this archaeological evidence points to the fact that the Bible can be trusted, can be believed. And then finally, uh, there's the the point of authorship of the scriptures. The authorship, uh, the scriptures, are claimed to be the word of God. So in your mind, we'd say, well, that's some kind of circular reasoning, right? You're gonna tell me that I can trust the Bible because they claim to be the word of God. But I'm gonna present it to you like this. If you have somebody who's a great friend of yours, somebody that you would trust your life with, and they came to you and they told you, hey, read this, I wrote it, are you going to doubt them? You're going to be like, yes, you wrote that. I'm going to trust this individual. It's the same thing when it comes to the word of God. We can trust the fact that it's the word of God because God says, I wrote this word and I've given it to you. We're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's uh, break that down just a little bit. If you have an NIV version of the Bible it'll say all Scripture is inspired by God, and uh, what it's done in the ESV is taken a more literal translation of what those words uh, were, And it says all scripture is breathed out by God. So literally are the breath of God. So in this miraculous process that we don't understand as human beings, all these different authors of the Bible are are actually writing the very words of God. It comes out through what they've done and what they've written. And it says... Uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. That word profitable there means supremely profitable or immensely profitable. So it's a very strong uh, kind of word in that spot. And it gives four things for which the uh, scriptures are profitable. It says they're profitable for teaching, for knowing what we need to know. So, so the Bible's going to tell you what you need to know. It's going to tell you the things that are true, what is right, what is true about Jesus. And then it goes on, it says that it's, it's good for reproof. Reproof is where it points out to you the things that you're doing that are wrong. Um, I'll just give you an example of that. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So just an example of reproof. So it's saying, if you're doing this, that is wrong, right? And then the third thing that it's good for, it says for correction. So the scriptures not only reprove us or tell us where we're doing things wrong, but they tell us how to fix it, to fix what we're doing wrong. What should we be doing instead? Just another example. I mean, scriptures are replete with this, but in Matthew chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, when you fast, which means to go without, uh, for a time period might be without food. Uh, We sometimes would fast in technology today. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do. So what their tendency, what their desire was is that if I'm fasting, I would put ash on my face and make myself look like I was really suffering so that when people ask me, yes, I'm fasting for the Lord, you know. And uh, we can tend to do those kind of things today. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So in other words, all they're going to receive is the reward of their friends patting them on the back saying, whoa, that's so great of you. Truly, I tell you, they have received. Oh, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, this is an example. It starts with a section of re, a rebuke, and then it goes on in a reproof, and then it goes on and talks about the correction. What should we be doing instead? Then, the fourth thing that Scripture is good for for us is for training in righteousness. So Jesus is our ultimate example of righteousness. He lived a sinless, perfect life. So this verse is telling us that in Scripture, we can find the ultimate training for righteousness. That is the way of becoming more and more like Jesus. Then it goes on in verse 17, right? Verse 17 says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's... It's talk about a process that describes what discipleship is all about, right? It says, this is what the scriptures are, are about. The scriptures are about making sure you get on the right path, that if you get off the right path, that you get reproved, that you get corrected and brought back on the right path, and that path is that path of righteousness. That's a path of becoming more and more like Jesus towards this end, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the purpose of what discipleship is about. That word complete, is the word that means uh, mature or finished. And uh, when you think about discipleship, from the moment we become a Christian, God begins this work in us to become more and more like him. And it's a process that continues right to the day that we die. That day that we die, we should be more and more like Jesus than we were the first day that we accepted him as Savior. And it's in that process that we are becoming more mature, uh, we're becoming more complete, and that completion is finished, at that moment where we're in glory with him uh, for eternity. So if this is what the Bible does for us, it has these four important functions that help us become more and more like Jesus, then what is it about our tendency to not trust the Bible? What do we tend to do instead? I have four things I wanted to share in this area that we tend to do rather than trusting the Bible. One, is we selectively use it. So we we go to scripture because, you know what, it points out your sin really well. And I can find that part that points to your sin because that's the part that I really want to use. And rather than, you know, looking into the parts that might relate to my own problems. We also can selectively use it because we can look at things and say, hey, this is just not sort of a, politically correct or or culturally relevant today, right? So there's things that are difficult in the Bible because they sort of counteract where the rest of the world is. So I'll give you an example of one that's sort of the opposite way. There's there's an area in the world today that, thank God, the church and some of the leading secular uh, individuals are in partnership on, and that's related to the whole sexual slavery issue, Right? This is one where we as Christians tend to be in great agreement with a lot of other people in the world. So we find the things that relate to that in the Bible. Those are easy things to talk about because, man, we're all in agreement on it. And it's, it's actually popular in the thought circles in the world today. And then, then there's other areas in Scripture where we, we struggle with it because we're, we, we're almost scared to trust it. To, um, we want to selectively use it and selectively move away from it because where the Scriptures are clear... Is not where the rest of the world is at today. God's word makes it clear to us that he's designed marriage. Uh, and, he, and within that marriage, he's created sexual uh, intercourse as the uh, place for intimacy within that marriage. And in the world today, we have a world today that says marriage is not necessary for that. You can enjoy that without being involved in a marriage And yet that's not what we find in Scripture. So our tendency is to want to selectively use it to avoid those kinds of things where uh, there is some question from our culture today about them. Second way that we fail to trust the Scripture is that we tend to not see it as being objectively true. Let me explain a little bit of what I mean by that. So objectively true means that it's true for all times, all peoples, everywhere. And that's not a popular thing in our world today. We live in a world today that's called postmodern. The idea of it is that you have your own version of truth, you have your own version of truth, I have my own version of truth, and you know, in some ways they compete in the marketplace. But that's not a really accurate picture of how the world really is. And I'm going to use this blank piece of paper here as an illustration for you. So if you think about this piece of paper representing the entire universe, everything, the entire universe, stars, moon, sun, people, earth, whatever, they're all in this little square, right? And if you look really closely, you can see yourself right there, too. You're waving, by the way. It's really cute. Um, So this is the universe, right? And if you think about this a little bit, you're over here and I'm over here and you've decided that in your culture, in your world that you live in, that this is morally right or this is morally wrong. And and I'm over here in my world and I decide that this is morally right or that's morally wrong. And, And our ideas are in conflict with each other. And, and that's just sort of the way it is inside this square. If all there is exists on this sheet of paper, then that's what, what's there. But when you look at Scripture, that's not what we understand reality to be. The reality is, is there's a God of the universe that stands outside of this, all of this universe stuff, that stands outside of it. And because of that, that's our objective perspective. That's the place where what's morally right and wrong uh, comes from. So from that spot, if you're here and I'm over here, we look towards this. It's the same standard that applies to you and applies to me. That's what I mean by Scripture being objectively true. It's true for all times, all people, everywhere. And I'm going to tell you, this whole idea of the objectivity of Scripture is countercultural. This is so much against much of what you see in the modern Western world today. And I'll just give you one example of it from Scripture. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's a truth claim. It's a truth statement that he's making there. And he's making that statement from the position of objectivity, saying, you know what? It's true for you, and it's true for you, and it's true for you, and it's true for everybody that's in the world. And that's not comfortable in our world today. We, even as Christians, want to live like it, if somebody else has a different way to get to God, then that's okay. God bless them, and that's good for them. That's not what Scripture said. Scripture's made an objective truth claim that's counter to what the world likes to think today. And that's not easy. It's not like I take great joy in it. It has consequences for how I live and how I think about the people that are around me and how saddened I am by their condition. Um, and it's, it's a statement that says, I am the way. That Jesus says he is the only way for us to have a relationship With the Father. So, our tendency to not trust Scripture comes because we tend to selectively use it. We tend to not see it as being objectively true. And then, third, we tend to ignore it. So, this is the tendency to be like, I know what it says about this particular thing that I'm doing, but I'm going to ignore it because, man, it's not comfortable for me to have to deal with the conviction that I feel related to this passage of Scripture. So, uh, the scriptures can be the kind of things that will convict us, reprove reproof us, as we talked earlier, correct us, and that can be uncomfortable. So our tendency can be to ignore it. And then the fourth thing is that we can be lazy in our reading of it. And there's really sort of three ways that we can be lazy in this. And I will share with you, this is personally convicting to me. So the first way that I'm lazy about it is I just don't read it, Right? There's a tendency to not spend as much time in the Bible as I should, not be committed to reason, reading it. I also can be lazy in, in uh, my reading of it by not putting effort into understanding it or interpreting it. Some of us will get into reading a scripture passage and be like, well, whatever that was, that was you know too much. I, I don't wanna understand that. Uh, I don't wanna put the effort into understanding that. Let me move on. And the reality, though, is that that When we were the moment we became a Christian, the moment we were saved, God put His Holy Spirit inside of us, and that through that Holy Spirit, that's our means, our mechanism by which we can come to understand Scripture. So, as we put effort into understanding the Scripture, God's Holy Spirit begins to work in us and help us to understand what He's saying through His Word. And then there's a third way that we're lazy in our reading of it. There's a little bit of a tendency to want to focus on simplistic passages and stay away from the things that are a little bit more difficult, right? To spend a lot of time on John 3.16 because, man, I get that one, and not so much time on some passages like the book of Revelation that may be a lot more challenging. Uh, We see this a little bit in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to look at just a few verses here. Uh, Starting at verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. As we grow, as we mature, as we are Christians for longer, then we should be moving beyond the milk, the easy passages, to passages that may be more difficult to understand that are solid food. And the reason for it goes back to the whole principle of maturing, that our goal as a disciple is to become more and more like Jesus, to mature in our faith And it says here that those who are mature have their powers of discernment trained. Discernment means to be able to recognize what something is. Is it good or is it evil? Uh, Recognize what it is, uh, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, um, again, the fourth point here being that we can be lazy in our reading of it. I want to close with this thought today, is that every one of us tends to have one or more of these ways that we don't trust Scripture. You might have come here today, and when I presented that section about can I believe the Bible is God's word, talked about the authorship and the accuracy of it and those kinds of things. Like, hey, I have no problem with that. And then yet, when it came to this point of whether am I really trusting the scriptures, one of these four areas is going to be an area that's problematic for you. You may tend to selectively use it to point, have the parts that only point out the sins in other people, um, to not see it as being objectively true, that, yeah, that part applies to me, but I can see where it doesn't apply to this other person, where we can have a tendency to ignore it. There are things that it says that I don't like, so I'm just going to ignore those things, or that we can be lazy in our reading of it, where we're not engaged with reading, or, or the things that we read, or we want to focus on the easy parts of the passages to it, or, or we're not committed to trying to really understand it. One of those four areas is probably an area that you are struggling with. I think each one of us has struggles within uh, those things. And I just want to challenge you as we conclude today that you would look inside yourself as we cl- conclude in a word of prayer and ask yourself, God, is, is there one of these areas that's an area of struggle for me? Is there an area within this that, that I need to be doing a better job with? How do, I, how do I really see Scripture as the means of becoming more and more like Jesus? Let's close in a word of prayer. God, as followers of you, each one of us is a disciple. Disciples are are people that are becoming more and more like your son. And Lord, you've made it clear that the way that we do that is through uh, an understanding who your son is through your word, through the scriptures, Lord. We have to be committed to reading them and trusting them and understanding them and applying them in our lives. And Lord, I just would ask that each individual here would be committed to that, Lord. Would understand that your word can be trusted, that your word um, comes alive for them, Lord, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for teaching us how to live righteously, Lord, Lord, may we be committed to Your Word, and God. Now, as the ushers come forward and we collect our morning offering, Lord, I just would ask that You would take this offering, use it to further the work of this church in Your Kingdom, in Redlands and in, and beyond, Lord, and some of the ministries that we support in other places. Lord, I just would ask that You'd bless each giver here this morning, Lord, and. Uh, Continue to work in our hearts and lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.